Coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland, I'm Anthony. And I'm Cece, and this is Lit Pop Bang. We have another really great episode for you this month. This month we have Kyle Dargan. Kyle is the author of forthcoming poetry collection, Anagnoresis, yeah. from Northwestern University Press, uh, and four previous poetry collections from the University of Georgia Press. Yes. For his work, he has received the Kaveh Kahnem Poetry Prize, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, and grants from the D.C. Commission of the Arts and the Humanities. His books have been finalists for the Kingsley Tufts Poetry yes. Award and the Eric Hoffer Award Grand Prize. He's currently an associate professor of literature and the director of the creative writing at American University. Originally from Newark, New Jersey, Dargan is a graduate of St. Benedict's Prep, the University of Virginia, and Indiana University. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. That must have been the, the deep bio from the website. Yeah, That's, yeah. What, <laughs> that's what we try to go for. We the try for that. The government bio. Yeah. We, <laughs> what do you well, want? Let's see where we go. You, Shall we go next? You want, the, non, you want the non-government bio? What, is, what, yeah. what does that tell look us, like? Tell yeah. us the other stuff. Tell us the stuff that's not on there. Um, no, I, I just think it's funny how writers, like, we have our our government personas and like sort of our artistic personas was like so one of we have a new faculty member at uh, AU um, Patricia Park but she goes by Patty mm. um, so she sort of like settled that as we call her Patty so every once in a while I get like an email from Patricia because like that's like her you know government name that's right. I'm like who is this Patricia email right. me about like, right. I'm like oh this is Patty like right. so that I like going by street names like so you know once 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 I get the street name now it's hard for me to go back but street name yeah. yeah. All right. And then there it's needs hard to have a street name with Kyle because already so short. So <laughs> right. Well, I have multiple personas. This, it's CC for this podcast, but mm-hmm. you know, I mean, everybody has to. I don't know. I go. I I've avoided this actively. I thought about like when the first book was coming out, doing AW, right? Especially oh. for some of the stuff I talk about in there. But um, I also was like in the army for a long time and had to have two personas. Like mm. right. And uh, and so I don't want to do that anymore. I want to have just the one really? real life person. You're into folding, social media, folding them in. Social media educator, street Anthony, all the same person. I'm into separating. Do my best. Do my best. I'm into separating them out. They're all totally different. They're all they're all different, I don't know, iterations of me. That's what I like. But not one. So yeah, so we always give anyway. the we always give the official government bio, but we also yeah. always ask somebody what's something that's not on there that you would not like not people to that's know. you about you, yeah. I used to be a landscaper. And that's why you have a lot of trees in your poems and also it okay, I'm sorry. No, no, that's, so yeah, I spent a lot of time around the trees and putting them into the ground. Yeah. And um, you know, I still hoop a lot. And yes. I'm like not like, oh, like, yeah, I, I play basketball every once in a while, but like, no, I, I can hoop. And so it's every once in a while, like a poet will want to be like, oh, you play basketball, like, let's play. And like <laughs> then they like, oh, like you could really play. I was like, what do you think? Like I well, meant yeah, when yeah. I like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like I don't accept the invitation to play basketball. It's like I'm really gonna gonna play, right? So there's <laughs> there there's that. Um, but it's it, it's fun. So those are two things that I do to sort of get my mind off of all the other nonsense that's happening in DC right now. So, but it's not in the bio, but it does come out in your work, and so yeah. that's what well, that actually is a perfect segue to the first question. I have, oh, which segue. Is, We're getting back. I was gonna say a lot of your um, a lot of your work has a, a working class authenticity to it. Part of which I imagine comes from an upbringing in Newark. Um, and you mentioned sort of like landscaping, that sort of like labor certainly can can influence that. But at this point, you have your MFA, you're an associate professor, you're the director of a creative writing program, you've been publishing poetry for 14 years. Um, and this work, can, your new, new collection continues in a working class tradition, um, but also at least one of the poems in it uh, engages with a sort of tension stemming from how far you've come, right? So I was just wondering, like, what is it, what is, like, 
that working class background mean to you and your work now? And what is it that keeps that theme or sensibility or whatever in the work? Well, I mean, I think that's the thing that, you know, why I decided to sort of settle into teaching for as long as I had, right? Because I remember, um, but it was like digging holes, <laughs> right? You know, which is noble work, right? Yeah. But then you just ask yourself the question, like, you know, do you want to be digging holes for the rest of your life? You know, my, my grandfather, um, during the during the war, he uh, sort of like the, the work project administration, he used to dig up stumps in uh, Weekway Park. Uh, in North New Jersey, um, we get money. So, you know, I know that there's there's nothing wrong with doing that work. Um, but at the same time, you, you sort of know, like, there's sort of a limit to it, right? And it takes its toll in different ways. Like, definitely being a teacher takes its toll in your mind. <laughs> um, and being a landscaper takes its toll in your body. Like, I, there are yes. fingers that I almost don't have anymore because of, of landscaping, mm-hmm. right? That I've almost lost uh, digits on a number, number of occasions. So... You know, it, it's the sort of thing, like, I think everyone should sort of go through that kind of experience where you do some kind of labor or just something with your body. And then, like, after that, you know, you do something with your mind and decide, well, you know, how do I want to negotiate this for the rest of my life? Yeah. Right. So I can still landscape, you know, when I want to, like, you know, when I want to work on my house or sort of like help someone else with their own house, like I can do that. And in some ways, then I can appreciate it more because I remember that I've reached a point where you know, you get up in the morning, you're like, I don't feel like digging holes today. Like, it doesn't feel like art today. Yeah. And like, so it's nice to be able to get back to that. Now I have the other problem where I have days where, like, I feel like I, feel like I don't feel like writing poems today. Yeah. And, and yeah. that feels the way that, you know, digging holes did at some point when I got to the point where I didn't want to dig holes anymore. So mm. now I'm, I'm just sort of, you know, figuring out, you know, the balance, right? Because I have to give myself some space. Like, I just, I'm always just thinking about the next thing. Right. I don't really think too much about what's happened in the past. But now I'm like, I have to like, dude, like you wrote five books. Like, That's what I was going to say. Like, you, right. I was you, just going to say you might you don't be really a little. Owe, yeah. You know, you don't really owe the world anything else right now. Like if you want to do something like you can do it. But like, don't feel that, you know, there's this pressure for you to get people more content. Like you can just relax for a bit. So I think I've been trying to settle into that with um, and Adderese is coming out now. Like I haven't been writing as much this year. Um, and I'm okay with that. I'm really okay with that. You've done a lot of work for in a short amount of time. I mean, I would argue that, and you won a lot of awards, you've done a lot of prestigious things. I mean, you've been on NPR. I was kind of going to ask you what your hope is for an agnoresis, make sure I'm pronouncing it properly, what your hope, like one thing that you haven't done, not an award that you haven't won, but, you know, one thing that, and I was also going to ask you uh, where the title derived from. I'm sure a lot of people are wondering where the title came from and what drew you to that. But I I also want to know what you hope for this book that you haven't maybe achieved or gotten in the past four books. I mean, it's, I mean, for me, like I already, what I want out of the book I've already done, which is mm. sort of like write a solid book from cover to cover. Yeah. Like, that's that's what I want out of it. So really, at this point, you know, in terms of my relationship to it, like, well, one, I think this is true with every book. Like, I don't want to write a book that my press goes into the red for. Like, that's yeah. very mm, important yeah. to me. Yeah, I so, agree. Like, first and foremost, I'm like, you know, you know, poets, we hate doing the promotional stuff and all that, but I'm like, publishers don't have to publish your books. It's very true. So I'm like, if I enter that agreement with a publisher, I feel like, you know, good faith. I have to do what I have to do to make sure the book like comes out at least in the black. 
Like, yeah. I'm not saying like making tons of money, but like you're not going to lose money publishing me. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's sort very of like noble. the that's first noble thing. That's very noble that you think Well, about. I mean, I think because I'm an editor too, right? I know. And I've, yeah. I've worked in publishing. So like I, I think the, and I know like there's been, a, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the whole eyewear publishing Oh yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. yeah. They have on, and, um, on Twitter. Yeah. So I, while I definitely believe that there there are some issues with the way that the publisher um, has been engaged with the poets, and I think in part it just seems like it's sort of like bad, um, bad administrative work. Like you know, everyone knows what like right of first refusal is. Like yeah, sure. if you don't talk about that with people, like that's kind of on you. Uh, but I, I <laughs> the emotional part, I understand. Right, the emotional part I understand because, like, yeah. oh, here I am, sort of investing all of this in these writers, and like, you know, they're just like hopping off, which is completely their right. Right. Um, you right. know, with 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 other books, and it's like, so if you want to maintain a relationship with a poet, you have to actively do that. You do. Like, it's you not do. it's not sort of like a compulsion. Like, they're just going to be there just because you published them exactly right. once, right? Like, so you're I, building I, a faction, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah I, and their loyalty is not guaranteed. I mean, this is like you know LeBron and Cleveland, you know, or what? I mean, I'm not going to go down the whole road, but I mean, you know, I understand why Clevelanders uh, they're 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 salty internally, but also it's not their right. It never has been really their right to feel. Uh, ownership over no. him, you know what I mean? In term, and that's a basketball reference for for yeah. for for our listeners who are saying, "What? Why are we?" I know a little bit, a little I bit about. Like, I feel like LeBron is a much of a, a cultural as, touchstone yeah. that, that and not just they sports. Get it. Yeah, because I feel like our right. listeners are like, "What the hell's happening?" She's talking about sports. Anyway, I digress. Anyway, but I felt like it was relevant when you're talking about eyewear publishing and the yeah. way that they, you know, are sort of uh, imploding. Yeah, and not happy about their poet's choices about going to other places. I mean. There's a way in which that's not appropriate, but you're right. The emotional aspect of it is probably different. That's the thing he, you know, as people often do, let his emotions get in the way of making, yeah. you know, proper business decisions and then at all. So, you know, got to watch your feelings. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and got to watch your contracts. I mean, how, too, how, how right? you doing? Look, <laughs> me, how you doing? Got to watch your contracts. I'm all about business. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day. Next, next um, uh, AWP I'm going to, we're actually yeah. doing a session, new writers doing a session where we're talking about sort of the whole thing of getting your first book published, and that includes contracts. I really want yeah. to make sure that we're talking about that yeah. like, transparently. Not in a way that, that putting our publishers on blast, but in a way that is like letting other <laughs> new <laughs> writers, letting each other, but also new writers know, like, yeah. this, uh, this is the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Of especially your first contract, especially if you're you're selling the book without representation. Sure. Yeah. I think that's something that doesn't happen in an MFA program, and now we're really going off on a, like another tangent, but a lot of MFA programs don't do their due diligence when it comes to professional development, right? And I think in, enfolded into professional development to me is talking about contracts and about yeah. what that means and about what, you know, it whether it's a single poem that gets published for poem a day or whether it's a whole book, you know, I mean, those who are coming up into this industry sort of need to know you know, quote unquote, the business aspect of it. And, you know, I don't know. It feels like that's not happening to me. Uh, it didn't happen in my MFA. Yeah. You know, no disrespect. Uh, I don't call it. <laughs> Look, my MFA program is like, what girl? Anyway, <laughs> but, it, but it didn't happen. And it doesn't happen in other MFA programs. But that's another. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll get back to the question about the book. But oh, sure. just talk and a bit as an MFA program director, like it's, it's difficult because you can also, you know, run the risk of erring too far. On the professional side, because everyone, yeah. everyone needs that information eventually, but not necessarily at the time when they're in the program. Like some people are going to be people like you're going to be publishing a book in two years, so you need to know this right now. 
Uh, some people are like, you may not publish a book for like 10 or so years. Like, you need to come back to me and talk to me then because the game's going to change a lot. So, I mean, yeah. I'll say, yeah. you know, we don't have the same relationship we did a while ago. But one thing I always preach about Kevin Young is that he taught me to read contracts. And this is like maybe like 2005, right? He told me to read contracts for future electronic publishing because like a lot of contracts back then like they didn't know what e-publishing was going to be but they knew it was going to be something so they would take the rights that were sort of amorphous and they say well whatever we come up with we own the rights to that too right (laughs) right sure Kevin was like you want to make sure you go through your contracts and cross that out because that's definitely not in your interest and I always did and the publishers would be like how do you know about this I'm like someone hit me to the game (laughs) (laughs) shout out to Kevin Young for hipping you to the game Yeah, I mean, you need that. Everybody needs that to some extent, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, and you were going to say about the title, too. So right. About the title. So, oh, yeah, going back to my question. Yeah. So we used, to, we used to have this course at AU called Literary Imagination, which is very much kind of like, basically, because creative writers taught it, scholars taught it. So pretty much everybody did whatever the hell they wanted to do. <laughs> um, so, you know, I would often teach it was sort of like a focus on examining America. And one of the plays that I would use is uh, Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have the students sort of, because I, I don't, I'm not too interested in like interpreting like what's the play about as much as kind of right. like what is the playwright doing to sort of have, you know, bring out these different reactions from us. And so we will look at it through some of the, the, the classic elements of Greek tragedy, because I think, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, Willie Loman is a... a mm. A tragic hero. He sort of fits that 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 archetype. Definitely, definitely. Um, and so, in, in doing those, so you look like what is his tragic flaw? Like what is the moment of his reversal? Like all of those things, like the Hamartia, the Hubris, uh, Parapatia, all of that. So, an Acheresis, you know, is that moment sort of before the reversal, when uh, the tragic hero sort of makes a realization, and maybe not always accurate in terms of, like, what they need to do next, right? Sort of, like, makes that realization, like, uh-oh, like, I see where this is going and I need to change something. A lot Edip- of that in Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so Oedip- Oedipus, like, pulling his eyes out, right? Maybe not the best. <laughs> but he just, you know, like, something needed to happen. He's and reacting, I was like, yeah. right, that was, right, that was the reaction that, that needed to happen. So I've always had this term in my mind. I always found it, like, one of the more, because it, it would always be the question, like, ask the students, like, do we or don't we have this in Death with Salesman? Because it's not a classic Greek play. That's why I loved about asking that question, because, like, I don't have an answer. You just have to argue. One way or the other. Right, right? exactly, yeah. And um, so I've always had it in my mind. And then, so 2016 happened. And so I have to say, in a way, like, that was a moment of uh, an anaresis for me, because I always sort of kind of held on to that belief that the sort of like quote unquote, and I don't even like think this is a term that's really useful anymore, but like the good white people, there were enough good white people to pre- prevent certain things from happening. Like, of course, people get close, but like there was a bulwark of enough of the good white yeah. people to keep certain things from happening. And sort of like watching that fail, like for the country, I was just like, wow, like they're, they're really willing to let <laughs> the country drive off the cliff in the name of whiteness. Like that's, that's <laughs> really where we're at. Yeah. And it's also difficult, too, because, like, I say something like that. Some people get offended and have to understand, like, when I say white people, I only mean you if you actively identify as white, right? 
So if you don't organize your world that way, just like, oh, I'm Italian American, like it, but then then like you're something else. But if you there are lots of people, and I think these are a lot of the people that did vote for uh, the president, like these are people who actively organize their entire world around whiteness in some way. And some of that's subconscious too, right? Because you have the people that may say, Well, I'm not a I'm not a white supremacist, but you're hella comfortable with all the benefits of white supremacy. Right. right? right. So that also kind of puts you in that that boat. So just sort of like Noticing that, and I had this thing. I don't think I've told this story yet, but I'm probably gonna tell the story a lot. So when I was oh good, an exclusive here on Lip Pop Bang. Yeah. So when I was little, uh, me and my my grandmother lived um, on Elizabeth Avenue in North New Jersey. Um, I used to stay with her a lot, and she had. So this is like 1986, maybe. Um, so you know, people had the little tape recorders with the deck. Yeah. Like a boombox. Yeah, you yeah. used to record things. Yeah, I'm, old, like, yeah. I'm older than you. The, yeah, the, the, a boombox. Look at me, a boombox. No, 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 no not the boombox. Like, the little one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The little oh, ones the small one. Oh, the small yeah. one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like almost like the answering machine, the old right. school, but it's right. not that. Exactly. But anyway, yeah, you would say, so, yeah, okay, so she had she had one of those, and she was a singer. She was a Broadway singer. She oh. was in Carmen Jones' um, oh, original production. Lovely. So she would, you know, record herself singing sometimes in practice. But me, I'm just a little kid. Like I'm like, oh, new thing. Let me play with it, play with it, play with it, play with it. Um, and I broke it. Oh. And um, you know, she came in the room. She was, you know, rightfully upset, and you know, kind of castigated me a bit. And I was crying and crying and crying. And like maybe like another thirty minutes went past, and I was still crying and crying and crying. And you know, she came into the room and she told me. She said, "Look, if you're still crying at this point, it's not about the tape deck." Because I've already sort of forgiven you for that. So mm-hmm. if you're still crying about this, it's about something else. And she was right. She, I was crying because I disappointed her. Oh, yeah. That's what I was crying yeah, about. Yeah, or yeah, crying yeah. about the tape deck or her All yelling right. at me. I was All crying right. about the fact that I could tell. This, you had let her down. I had let her down. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, mm-hmm. f- for me, like now, as I'm sort of like engaged in the world and like sort of like using my work, I have this idea. I call it functional disillusionment. Mm. Um, and it's sort of a way of kind of like telling like people like the 53% of Caucasian women that, you know, voted for Trump, like, like it's, I'm going to hold you to the fact of how disappointed Mm. I am right now. And it's not about quickly getting back on my good side or it's not about doing something nice now. It's about, you have to sort of like sit and own like this disappointment that you have produced in me. And like, if it hurts for a little while, like good for you like because it's something that you're going to need to understand right and so there's there, there's lots of things where like i just look at you know certain institutions be they political be they academic and they come to me and like well what can we do to change this or make change i'm like i don't have faith that you can do that and that's where i am like yeah. that's where uh-huh. i am you got to deal with that first like before uh-huh. before we can move on to solutions you have to deal with the fact that i don't have faith in your ability to even enact any solution um, that's a deep statement. And so that's a lot of that sentiment is in the title. It's in the book in, oh. in, in yeah. various ways. So that's where it all sort of comes from. Absolutely. Especially just thinking of, of that moment, that uh, narrative moment as 2016, you know, in terms of race, in terms of broadly of the American project, right? Of having that realization that like, oh, maybe this isn't working the way we say it is supposed to. Um, yeah, and another thing just to tie in the, the Oedipus Rex again. So there's that moment, right, when the the shepherd, because remember, like, 
Oedipus, they sent him away because yeah. they uh-huh. said, you know, he's going to kill his father and, like, hook up with his mama. Um, so when the shepherd comes from the other town where they sent him away, and he's like, you know, Oedipus, your father has died, right? He's thinking, like, oh, like, this fixes everything. Like, because if my father is dead, right. you know, then my father can't be, like, the father that I'm beginning to think I am. And I feel like that was, like, the Obama moment, mm. right? Like Obama for America was like people were like oh we elected Obama and then like we won we did yeah, right it was We're free things not going and then like you know the other shepherd came along and had to be like yes in fact I did take you up to that hill so you could die and that's the moment we're in now like so you know there's that 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 shift so I don't know you know how it's gonna how it's gonna play out but you know the other thing is too is like I'm. You know, and it feels weird, like, saying this, especially, like, during this presidency. But, like, I'm black. Like, black people, and I, I don't like using this metaphor because I think tonally it doesn't sound right. But, like, I think, like, there, there are some people in America who are, like, the roaches of America. And what I mean by that is, like, nuclear holocaust, flood, fire, whatever. Like, we're going to survive. Like, we're going to be all right. Not all right, but we'll survive. Yeah. Right. I think yeah, there's, there's always trauma related yeah, to that survival. True, true. Okay, I think there are right. some people who, for the first time, are feeling that, right? Sure. But black folk are like, uh, have you read a book? Because <laughs> we... Do you remember the history of the 20th right, century? It, it's sort of like, that's why, and I, I understand, but like, I know there are some people like who are lumping anachronistas into the resist movement. Oh, okay. And I'm like, that's... And you don't really want that. Well, I mean... That's cool, but the thing is, like, the things that black people are talking about, like, it didn't just start in the last two years. Right, right, of course right. not. Like, we're talking about, if you want to talk about resist, we've been resisting indigenous people. Sure, of course. But, right? So it's like, just because it's sort of trendy now, like, I get that you're having your moment, but, like, if you're really going to do a service to, like, that kind of work, and there are a lot of books like that, you know, being published this year, Fatih's book, oh, yeah. it's like that. You have to keep in mind that people have been doing this work. Exactly. Work, so. Exactly. If Claudia Rankin's citizen comes along and is the hit of the United States, it's not because, you know, she necessarily foresaw this really prophetic moment. It's that that this moment has been going on recurring cyclically in America for a long time. Yeah. So we want to get back to the book and talking about uh, specific poems in the book. And I'm particularly interested in a poem that I read uh, a couple years ago in Tin House originally. Um, this entitled, I'm going to read the exact title. In 2016, the African-American poet Kyle Dargan is asked to consider writing more like the African-American poet Ross Gay. So I want to know the backstory behind that poem and also ask you, is there any beef between you and uh, <laughs> Ross Gay? You know what I mean? We have to dig to the the tea here at uh, Lit Pop Bang. So no, I mean, if you have beef with Ross Gay, you have to be like a horrible person. I agree. <laughs> so he's like my my like my play baby daddy. But so so, do you know his poem? Yes. So he has that poem. But you should tell the listeners that right. poem. So yeah. he has a poem called "Within Two Weeks." The African American poet Ross Gay is mistaken for both the African American poet Kyle Darkin and the African American poet Terrence Hayes, neither of whom look anything like the other. I think that's <laughs> about it. So well, world's longest title. So, so that's true. So, like, one day, Ross and I, we were up at Breadloaf. And, oh, okay. you know, I saw this sort of, this older Caucasian woman sort of run past me, sort of, like, very uh, shaken. And then I saw, like, Ross, like, in the distance. And I was like, oh, my God, like, what did Ross do up here? Like, we're black people in Vermont. Like, he's up here scaring old white ladies. Like, what? 
And so I run up to Ross. I'm like, Ross, what's going on? And he's like, that lady just asked me to sign your book. And I was like, that is oh, so well. And then she had a reason to, to be, you know, embarrassed or shook, whatever she was. Um, so there's that. So, hmm. and... Um, and so then he wrote his poem. So, yeah, so out of that, that okay, experience, he wrote his poem. Yeah, and that's cool. Okay. It's funny. Like, uh, you know, I think that, I mean, that poem is sort of like biting too uh, in ways. It is. Um, so, you know, years, years go by. And I think like, because last year, it's like I always have this thing where it seems like I always release books in the same year that either like Terrence or Ross mm-hmm. releases books. And I think sort of like in that sort of triad, like I'm often kind of like the person that gets lost in that, you know, which is cool. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I just keep writing. And because I admire both 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 poets. Yeah, they're both fantastic. So um, that year, like I think Ross and I were also like both up for the Kingsley Tufts, Tufts yeah. the finalists for, for that. Yeah. And, you know, he won. won. Yeah. And I think sort of like after that, because I mean, it, it's it's hard not to be a little in your feelings about losing a hundred thousand dollars. Like even if like you I didn't agree. try, like, me, I agree. like it's hard. It's hard not to be a little in your feelings. So <laughs> I I remember sort of just like talking to people after, and someone who probably won't even remember that they did suggested to me like, well, maybe you should try to like write a little bit more like Ross. Um, and this was a Caucasian woman, and I'm not going to put you know people on, on blast. Right, it's, it's right. what it is. Right. And, like, the rage that that sort of, like, ginned up in me um, was, like, deep. Like, really, really deep. And um, so I had, like, two ways to process that. Like, I could either, like, you know, be really angry unless, like, going around being, like, really salty. Or I could, like, put the anger into a poem in some way. And I think that's the, the, the tricky thing about that piece is, like, I think people look at the title and be like, oh, like, you know, like Ross and Kyle are trading this poems. Like, no. Right, like rap um, beefs. I like um, it. <laughs> like really, it's it's targeted towards that audience that that woman represented uh, that was sort yeah. of suggest, suggesting kind of like, oh, you know, maybe if you do. Because that's the other thing. Like just thinking of Ross Gay as kind of like this great, grateful, happy Negro all the time is also a misreading of his work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think. And, it, and all the resistance that is in that work too. Right. So I, I think yeah. it, it, it calls out that too. But I'm, I'm sort of learning kind of like in my old age that like I don't have to like maybe directly write invective, but. If I can sort of like take the anger I have, just kind of like process it through, like, because there's there are lots of little shady things in that poem that I think ultimately only someone who's like really, really been keeping up with contemporary poetry will get, and I'm fine with that. So like, if there's levels to it, there's levels of like shadiness to right. it. So right. and I, and I like that. Like some people will get <laughs> yeah. all of it, and some people will get some of it, and like it's it's cool. I mean, I love that it got published in Tin House. I mean, yeah. I thought I thought hooray. For Tin House for publishing it is what I sort of thought. I mean, I don't know if they published it. Who knows why they picked it? Who, you know, maybe well, I know why. Because oh, you do know why. Camille Dungy was a reader. Oh, okay, my bad. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I, okay, my bad. I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. But yeah, I, I just thought this is a really interesting. I didn't know all of the backdrop of the story, yeah, but it's really interesting cool. to see uh, poets responding to one another. Uh, but you had a you had a question. Oh yeah, I was going to ask yeah, one there's... more thing before we close up this section yeah. about another poem. And so the, the collection ends with a really grand poem, a really big grand poem about the sun engulfing the planet. Echo, right? Uh, and it got me 
thinking about endings. And I was wondering if you just say sort of briefly your thoughts on ending a collection. As a writer and or as a reader of poetry, uh, what are you looking for in like the final poem of a collection? Um, like I think it's hard to just talk about the final poem, right? Because I think, you know, there's that um, maybe inkling to like save like something really big for the ending. Mm-hmm. But you also run the risk, like if you do that, and like you have to put in a kind of like a lot of filler poems to like make it to the end. Yeah. And then you're like, people yeah. might not make it to the end of the book for like your big thing. Yeah. Right. So I think in some ways you have to think through like, you know, it, it may require you to like write a poem to end the book. Um, you know, one of the things that I often tell, you know, MFA students, like as they're putting together their manuscripts, is like once you put together the manuscript, like you'll see the holes. Mm-hmm. And you'll know like what, what are statement. the poems that you need to I write agree. to finish the book. I agree. Because yeah. you yeah. write you write poems to start the book and you write poems to finish the book. Yeah. Um, so I think sometimes you just have to write those poems to finish the yeah. book. I got lucky in this case. Um because I, I I'd written that poem and, and a lot of this, like when I was writing a lot of it at Anaresis, like it didn't look like it was stuff that was gonna come together. And then like gradually, like once it distilled into something of a sort of like an arc, I was like, oh, okay, I see what's happening. Mm. And so then it was like, because I worry about the book. Like it's it's weird. Like people are like, oh, I'm excited to read the book. I'm like, it's not that kind of book. <laughs> like it, it, it's not that kind of book where you're going to read it and be like, yeah, it's yeah. going to I think it's a book you're like, damn. Like, so it's kind of like, how do you end a book like that? So yeah. I think I wanted to end on something that is still sort of like, it's it's kind of tragic in a way, right? Losing Earth, but like it's so far to the future, right? And it'll be such a different place. So I think that's how um, that happened. But I, I always think I love last poems that open out into the world, yeah. right? So that's what they like, should do. Like it's yeah. kind of like you finish the book, and yeah. now this book has opened a door into the world that you can sort of like keep walking into without the mm-hmm. poems. Yeah. Um, so that's what I try to do. But I've ended two books in a row on space now because Honest Engine sort of ended on space too. So I can't do that. And I'd also like to say, I don't know what your perception is of the book, but I think um, I think people should read the book um, because of a number of things besides your talent as a writer, but also because you have the section that we haven't really addressed and we d- don't really have time to go into it here on the podcast, but the China section I think is very interesting. And that is a section, um, I was going to ask you a little bit about it. We don't have a lot of time, but I think um, even, even changing the lexicon and the visual uh, representation in that portion of the book to me is is a prime reason to read this book because I think that in and of itself and the connections between you and thinking about race and being in another another continent you know and thinking about all these things are sort of the things that sort of hold this work together about um, you know what otherness is and how that exists in a different continent right so so I think I mean you know despite the fact you have great po- other great poems in this book, um, you know, like a uh, poem resisting arrest and things that maybe, that maybe other people have read or the poem of Bob Ross gave that may seem controversial that people may want to read about. But I think um, the section on, uh, you know, you're going overseas is a really interesting and uh, convincing section that people will be uh, delighted to read. Yeah. What's the official release date? Uh, the 15th. I mean, some people will be getting it early if they're in the Rumpus Poetry Club book club so 15th of September September. so like we're right around right around the corner like I said Parnisha told me she's touched the book, so it's, it's in the world. All right, there you go, readers. Uh, by the time this comes out, it'll be less than a week away. It so will be. order it. You can pre-order it. Uh, if not, if it's already out, go buy it now. 
We're going to go away and be right back. All right, and we're back with the pop portion of the show. Um, busy pop month. Busy it political. Always, it always is. It always it's also is. a busy political month, and we're it just going to scrape at that. So, we are. We're not going to scrape uh, We're the, the United States falling apart. We're in the point of <laughs> constitutional crisis. <laughs> Can we uh, see? We'll our just breeze over that and get to the pop culture. Our listeners are worried. They're, when you say the country's falling apart, our listeners are like, no, but you're providing us some sort of yeah. respite. That's, why we don't, that's, that's one of the reasons we try to only scratch at it, not go deep into the politics. We don't want to. Uh, this podcast will be about nihilism. Um, okay, so <laughs> to start, uh, related to our lit portion, some literary news. Uh, yes. Eve Ewing, yes. Um, the poet, professor, sociologist, and celebrated Twitter person, announced this week that she will be the next writer for Marvel Comics' Ironheart. Do you yep. know about Ironheart? I do, all? a little okay, bit. Okay, cool. So Ironheart is a story of Riri Williams, who's a young black engineering student who, while attending MIT, invents her own version of the Iron Man suit. Um, she later goes under the wing of Tony Stark. Yeah. Um, for I, a while, takes the Iron Man mantle um, before uh, sort of charting out on her own as Ironheart. So, um, Eve Ewing is a very talented poet. She so, is. Yeah. And I'm it's really exciting. Excited about it. It's so exciting. It seems like uh, writers more and more are getting the chance to pin, uh, you know, other things outside of the genre, which yeah. I think is really exciting. Yeah. For me. Cool, just not only for like, Black women getting these opportunities, but also for like literary capital, literary writers getting more opportunities to write. What do you mean? Comics. Oh, you right? mean? What do you mean? I mean, like people who are in like the literary community who are writing poems and are writing these sort of like MFA books and are known within like oh, right. MFA Twitter and literary Twitter are writing pop books, right. like comics so they're right. and movies right. and stuff. Like I, that. I so agree. I'm thinking about like Roxanne getting, Gay. Right, right. I was going to say uh, Rod, World of Wakanda. Rod, World right? of Wakanda. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. So they're getting more exposure is sort of what you think. Oh, yeah, well, kind of, but also like just putting those cool, like thoughtful approaches to literature in comics. Yeah. That's cool too. You yeah. Know, Harvey too. Oh, yeah. Wait. Yeah. I think we're still trying to figure out the, how much crossover there is, right, between those two communities. Because I think we have like how many how many people that like fuck with ta like we're reading like his Black Man. Black Panther series. Yeah. Like how many people that like fuck with Roxanne Gay or like really reading the comic too? So I think more so than those two, I think Eve has a better chance of actually like bringing those communities together. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I think it'll be an interesting run. It's really interesting. Do you think it's probably more or less than people think uh, of that crossover? Do you think it's bigger or smaller than people think of people who are reading? Perhaps you think poems. I think it's smaller. Yeah. Smaller? Yeah. I, I don't know. I think for me, um, I started the Black Panther series because Tony Hizzi coached me. I read World of Wakanda because Roxanne Gay was reading. Because you're smart. But I also <laughs> came up. I also came up with comics, right? I came up with comics. You I did. grew up reading you comics. Um, so right. And I just sort of fallen out. But now that I know that these writers who I really admire their prose or their poetry are doing comics, it's an incentive to get me back into comics. And I don't know how common or uncommon that is. Yeah. That and also thinking about diversity in general. About yeah. I mean, I obviously comics are thinking about. You know, putting diverse voices into the world, into yeah. the spirit. That, that's on their agenda, it seems, at the yeah. moment. Which is good. I guess it's good. You know, it's good to be on the agenda. Yeah. I mean, it's probably good for minority voices, even yeah. if the motivation is money, right? Even if the motivation is the money. Like, the motivation is always money. We can sell it now, right? Right. Um, 
it's still probably good for those voices who haven't had a seat at the table in the past. Right, yeah. exactly. I agree. So that should be ex- extremely exciting for her and for us. We're all waiting for it. I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I did not know about Ironheart before she made this announcement. It's a really cool story that I want to check out. Yeah, I didn't I know about it either. I know Iron Man, of course. Yeah, I really want to see her approach to that character. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's to how Twitter kind of made this happen. Like, yeah. Oh, people, did they, you think? People were like, we want Eve to do this. Like, wow. Like, she didn't, I don't think she auditioned for it. I think people were like, we want Eve to do this. And eventually she was like, well, yeah, I mean, I have the chops to do it. And they reach out to her. Wow. So I mean, maybe- I, I think that's, how, I'm, I'm sure that that's how it happened. Because I, I doubt that she would have, like, been, like, knocking on Marvel's door saying, yeah. hey, let me do They were like, hmm, yeah. like, let so, us consider this. I yeah, hope, I hope Twitter did that. I hope so too. <laughs> it's just like uh, you know, whatever. Was it Delta Airlines? The, the, uh, oh. the you're right. I was just like, I hope it's just like Delta Airlines. You know what I mean? Just shake the finger at you, Delta Airlines. Do, you know? So some sometimes Twitter does the world good. That's yeah. what I would say. What do you got for pop culture? Um, yeah. Well, the one small thing I, I want to make this like. Pretty quick. Madonna's tribute to Aretha Franklin. On the oh, beat. is that what we're calling a tribute? <laughs> I, that's the official. Lip Pop Bang, he just gave me shade, and I'm not here for it. But anyway, that um, yeah, that's what they're calling it. Madonna's tribute to Aretha Franklin, who passed, um, you know, uh, last, this week? Last week. Last uh, depending week. when you listen to it, sometime in August. Yeah, yeah. sometime in August, who was a, a huge cultural icon for uh, many African-American people. Um, both her, uh, you know, her... Her being raised out of the church and also singing soul music that became uh, pop culture for many of us. Uh, she went through a very interesting and long career as a musician and a vocalist. Uh, I say interesting because there's lots of there's lots of stuff. Um, but I mean, she's a, an icon and she's a, a touchstone for us. So it's interesting uh, and maybe a little problematic that uh, first of all, Madonna looked like. A cross between, like, I don't know, like, Bob Marley, Young Jeezy, and, like, she she had some weird, and Erica Badu, she had some weird, like, facial... Okay, so here's, here's okay, the feel on that. Wait. She had just gotten back from Morocco. Um, Isn't that where one of her kids is? is yeah, I know she kids. lives there. She's she got nine, kids. they're all and brown, so I don't know. Um, the jewelry and the crown were traditional Moroccan. Stuff. Oh, okay. Not to excuse it. Not to excuse it. She looked ridiculous. Traditional Moroccan uh, garb. Okay. But, um... She's she been looked, known to appropriate before. Yeah, it seemed Hashtag a bit appropriate. Watch, totally. like a prayer. Yeah. Uh, just, <laughs> wait, like I, a prayer? Yeah. I can't, we can't. We, can't, okay, we, we'll we don't have time. We don't have time to get into the video. We'll do a close the reading drama. of like we a will. prayer in the future. Um, we will. Okay. And we'll link you to the video. Anyway, yeah. So she did a terrible tribute where she just talked about herself and like. And, and referenced her story. Her story or? about herself. And I was like, oh yeah. And by the way, Detroit? the audition was Aretha. The, right. The song I picked was Aretha. As a young girl coming out of Detroit. I mean, what girl? What do you what do you what do you do? Where's Aretha in this? Like, yeah. I just don't. But she I, also screwed up Prince's uh, tribute. I mean, FYI, that's what I had to say on Twitter yeah. when everybody was like, you know, ma 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 about Aretha. I was like, she also was the person who screwed up tri- Prince's tribute. So, did we really expect? I don't know. Where's where? Lip hopping, listeners. What is Madonna doing now these days with her life? Like, she's sixty. You said sixty plus. Yeah. What is she doing? She's. I think on her Instagram, she's taking pictures of herself in her in her bathroom. People said. I don't know. I don't follow her on Instagram, but she's. Where is her brain these days? What is she doing? I'm not a. You know, I'm not a Madonna hater. Me I either. just think she's very. I mean, I'm. She missed the spot here for sure. She did, but she. I think she. Frequently recently, recently in her. Elder years is miss, missing the spot. I don't know. I just, I don't know. What do you think, Kyle? I mean, I'm just glad that we don't have a Nicki Minaj, Little Kim beef 
the way with like Madonna and Lady Gaga. Like, I'm because I thought we were going there for a minute, and then right. I would be like its own kind of civil war. And for some people, <laughs> it is right. So I'm just glad that both are just sort of like able to go because it's kind of it, it's sort of sad happening. What looking at what's happening on the other side of the pop industry in that mm. regard, and sort of women pitted against women. So I'm just like, you know, for the most part, let Madonna do what she. My my whole thing is like, look, I don't I don't think the VMAs is an appropriate place to sort of honor Aretha, just kind of given how, I mean, the Grammys is barely good enough right. for yeah. Aretha. Right. So VMAs, I'm like, mm, like, okay, right. like, youngsters, you right. know. <laughs> right. Well, they were trying to be now and current. I feel like they were trying to rush Yeah, that, and that comes off like you, you wind up coming off disingenuous. It's kind yeah. of like, you know, if you're not going to, here's the thing, with some people, if you're not going to do it right. Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, another thing for me, I noticed some Star Wars news. You know, yep. I'm always up on the Star you Wars You are, news. you are, you're always informing me. I, you know, I think I'm in an in-between, right? I'm not like a hardcore no, Star I know Wars you're person, not. right? Yeah. Um, I would never claim that. But, but falls I fall, I enjoy purview. Star Wars, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I grew up in Star Wars, I enjoy Star Wars. Uh, um, so yeah, this week, kind of cool, uh, Kelly Marie Tran, who played the Resistance fighter and mechanic Rose Tico in um, Star Wars Last Jedi, um, she wrote a brief essay in the New York Times about the harassment she experienced online um, as a sort of backlash for being the first woman of color to play a major role in a Star Wars film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the essay, she discusses just like how growing up as a, a person of Vietnamese descent in the U.S., she always felt like the other, um, and how so many people of color grow up in a society that tries to convince them that like they should be white, they should yeah. adhere to like white standards of beauty. Yeah. Um, and the essay is sort of like a reemergence back in the public light um, after being bullied so badly on social media that a few months ago she deleted all her social media accounts and just disappeared. And so mm. this is the first time she's really spoken up. Mm. Um, and the, the piece gets a bit manifesto-y. It's like, I want to I wanna live in a world where this, I want to live in a world where this, right? right? But there's this really good piece about halfway through. I'm going to read it verbatim. Um, and as much as I hate to admit it, I started blaming myself. I thought, oh, maybe if I was thinner, maybe if I grew up my hair, and worst of all, maybe if I wasn't Asian. For months, I went down a spiral of self-hate into the darkest recesses of my mind, places where I tore myself apart, where I put their words above my own self-worth. And it was then I realized that I had been lied to. Mm. And so it's about that. It's about her coming to terms with, like, no longer putting up with that, which is mm. really cool. This is a long side. It makes me think it's not maybe, I don't know if it's, it's not really Crazy Rich Asians, the new, yeah, yeah. The new movie that totally. I haven't seen it. I don't, have you seen it? I've not seen it yet. It's on the queue. It had amazing, like a $35 million five-day opening. Like yep, an incredible it did. opening. So it's definitely on my menu, too, to go yeah. see, along with Spike Lee's new black KKKKKRFG yeah, the black Klansman. VW yeah. Klansman uh, movie, whatever. <laughs> but, it, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking about these two things alongside each other and about yeah. visibility and representation and those sorts of things. I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, among the cool things about Crazy Rich Agents that is getting um, sort of lauded is it shows the diversity that a lot of uh, media that even includes Asian actors and Asian yeah. American actors misses, right? Yeah. So um, the poet Chen Chen was tweeting about this the other day. About yeah. How like um, it's like different dialects, right? Different oh, places of different national origin. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, even within a nation, different right. parts of that nation, and and drawing drawing distinct lines between sort of the class and regional differences within a nation. Yeah. In a way that like American media too often just misses or ignores. Yeah, and I've been reading about the fact that they say that the movie represents Asians in a way in a, in a sexual way that's not just the exotic, but it's in a real tangible way, and I think right. that's really important. I mean, as as 
as a black person, I feel like, you know, often our sexuality is exoticized, but not dealt with in a real um, tangible way. So I think this movie hopefully uh, will provide and open some doors for uh, Asian Americans and, and their diversity. I don't know. One of the things odd that Americans struggle with thinking of people of Asian descent as um, sex figures, because I'm always like, the person you got very early on is like Bruce Lee. And I think Bruce Lee is probably a very sexy motherfucker. Yeah, right? Um, yeah, it, 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 it's interesting because it's like you said, it's often when 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 Asian actors and Asian American actors are sexualized. It's right. the Western gaze looking East. Right? It is. Um, right, it's always that. It's and, and, always that. And so, it's always and that. And it's, it's almost all, it's frequently feminine bodies we're looking at, right? Yeah. And Asian men are sort of excluded. Right, Ang Lee. Yeah, you think, like I mean, Bruce Lee's a gorgeous dude. Like, he's an attractive guy. He's, I'm glad he's you guys both like it. Yeah. Shapes, Bruce right? Lee, I'm like, ah! You know, I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, ah! Yeah, I'm saying Jackie Chan. I don't know. No, but Bruce yeah. Lee is very uh, physical. I think ja- Jackie Chan's yeah. more charming. Right, right. I think, that's right. You know, you, you yeah. fuck Bruce Lee and you marry Jackie Chan. Like, <laughs> wow, maybe we should, maybe we should have had that for for yeah. Bang. Maybe yeah. that's what, maybe that's what we should. But anyway, um, um, yeah. But I mean, but but those sorts of things evolving in uh, popular media right now seem yeah. to be really important. So I think it's a good moment. Uh, hopefully, we get yeah. more representation yeah, and absolutely. you know those sorts of things. And I'm very much looking forward to Kelly Marie Tran in the next Star Wars. Film. Yeah, I can't wait. I think she was. I really love the last Star Wars film. Um, you know, there's this. Do you know this thing about like, uh, like white dude fanboys yeah. trying to reshoot? Did you hear about this? No. Wait, maybe like, Kyle knows. I like, don't know what's going on. Like, uh, traditionally, like white nerdy fanboys want are 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 petitioning to raise funds to reshoot and re-edit the Last Jedi because they think it's too social justice wary, right? And so they want to take out her character completely. They want to re- do the ending. My face right now, uh, listeners, is just is just complete it's, salt. Yeah, it's all, just all like the things, honestly, all the things that made the, the movie like one of the most interesting, complex Star Wars movies we've ever had are the things they want to take out. I'm not what I'm not going to even I'm not going to even acknowledge that I I don't I don't know where we where we go. Any more pop culture news? They are probably voted for Obama. So oh, but I'm bump. There's there's a joke of of the podcast. All right, one last section, our bang portion of the podcast, yeah. as always. Exciting. Yeah, and okay, so earlier I asked about um, the endings, the endings of your new collection, and it, um, that along with the fact that um, this week I rewatched a 2001 uh, Lars von Trier film, Melancholia. Uh, you didn't like it? No. no hardly anyone does. It's weird. It's, People either like, oh, what a gorgeous film, or like people like, oh, I did not make it through that. That was really miserable. Uh, again, I'm in the dark. The pacing is really, it's a it's a weird paced film. Anyway, you should okay. watch it. But I don't uh, know if okay. I should. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it ends in a really beautiful and epic way. Okay. Um, and it's sort of noted as a really um, uh, a celebrated ending of film. Okay. Um, so I was thinking this month, uh, asking a film ending that you think is just amazing, your favorite, something. You, you really adored. Um, mine is actually uh, a poem that's in my first. That's in my first book, uh, Corn Rose and Cornfields. Um, well, I'm I'm a huge, as everyone knows, I am a huge gangster mafia uh, heist oh, yeah. movie fan. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's really it's really um, it's real it's really controversial, especially considering I'm fact I'm a staunch feminist. It doesn't yeah. really congeal with that idea, so to speak. But anyway, um, my favorite film ending is from Carlito's Way. Um, I love I love train scenes and romantic 
there, there are multiple movies that have train scenes and romance at the very, very end. But anyway, Carlito's Way, uh, Al Pacino's character, uh, he's supposed to have gotten out of the out of the gangster game, right? But he got back into it, and uh, his co-star uh, leaving on a train, and supposedly Al Pacino is supposed to be coming to follow her, and they're supposed to be living their lovely love affair after he's gotten back involved into the horrible mafia life. So sad, teary-eyed emoji. But anyway, uh, so there's a platform scene. Um, I'm also, you know, uh, probably all my years in New York, too, in Grand Central Station, I'm very attracted to that space and about trains and about, uh, uh, I don't know, arrivals and departures on foot and it's kind of you know the railway is kind of the first American sort of dream and expanse and all this I don't know this is all my stuff about trains but anyway the scene is beautiful it's a pan shot uh, you know Al Pacino has got his little suitcase he's so cute he thinks he's getting out Gail's on the train she's way in she's you know waving through the little window he's running and right before this is kind of why I hate uh a John Leguizamo, uh, uh, right? Who I was just, I mean, right. Oh, I shouldn't spoil it for people who. No, yeah. Uh, oh, talking about ending. Spo- spoiler. Yeah. Obviously, there's going to be spoilers. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, anyway, Vinny from the Bronx shoots Al Pacino right before he's about to get on the train and go off to his happy <sighs> life. Yeah, and it's very tragic. And Gail is sort of in the window and she's sort of, you know, she rushes off the train and there's a sad moment. And you, you kind of know it, it was going to happen that he was never going to get out of this life, right? But at the same time, you feel this, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, seesaw emotion about someone who's trying to get out of the life that that really did try in some sort of way. And, and the woman that's waiting on the other side. This is a very antiquated fucking notion. I'm talking about this and I'm feeling bad for my like feminist sisters who are out there who are like, what? Cece, what are you talking about? But the point is, it's a gorgeous scene. Um, it's long. It's sprawling. It's beautiful. It's emotional. Um, then they play a scene at the end where actually Gail does go off and she uh, goes to some Caribbean island. She does. Uh, she's actually pregnant too uh, mm-hmm. in the movie. Yeah, yeah, real even more teary-eyed emojis. She's pregnant, so she's going to go off and have her baby, and she's going to live in this very peaceful land without her man who has died at the hands of uh, mafia de- dealings. But you know, hey, sometimes that's what the life is like. That's what I say about mafia movies. I love endings like that where. I have- Everything's coming and it's snatched from you. I'm yeah. about this. Right yeah, now. yeah, yeah. It's just it's I so need that. I so need I so need a tragic ending for me. I'm I, I can't deal with happiness. I don't know, whatever. I'm a poet. Kyle, what do you think? Yeah. Um well I say one, the the only good ending in the Star Wars saga is the ending of Empire. So that's that's one ending, sort of like the pan out with Luke minus one hand, sort of looking <laughs> out into the universe, you know, getting you ready for Return of the Jedi. Uh but if I really had to pick one, I would say um Usual Suspects. Oh, um, the ending. I, I, I try to end poems like the way Usual Suspects ends because hmm. that that moment when like you realize that verbal is Kaiser Sose and like right. kind of, I mean you know we know Kevin Spacey for what he is now unfortunately yeah, but unfortunately. so you know that 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 movie like that first time you watched Usual Suspects in the theater you were like holy <gasps> shit like that's that's when I, <laughs> yeah. I I'm always trying to like end end poems that way too so yeah. that's the one I would go with. You want to yeah. drop the bomb at the end and leave everybody kind it's of like... It's not so much like drop the bomb. It's just kind of like... It's kind of like... It's like the, the movie comes and it shows you what's been going on that you didn't even realize was going on yeah. okay. that whole time. Okay. 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 It recasts the whole movie, right? The turn recasts yeah. the whole movie. Like yeah. yeah. It's like the like, ultimate Volta. Like, yeah. right? yeah, yeah, the yeah. ultimate <laughs> Volta. That might be the name <laughs> of this podcast. <laughs> Love it. Okay, what about yours, Anthony? Uh, I wrote down a few. Most of mine are really a classic few? films. I'm just going <laughs> to talk about one. Oh, OMG. By the way, Empire, you're right. Empire is the best Star Wars ending, right? Like, it ends on a down note. It's the only one. 
Uh, Hans trapped in carbonite. Yeah. Luke loses the hand. Um, it's clearly like, hey, we're making a third film, period. You can't end here, right? It's right. Great. Love it, yeah. Um, okay, so a couple I wrote down that are really great, iconic, Doctor Strange love. Ends with sort of, as we expect, the world ending. Um, Moonlight had a sort of a happy ending, but not like a, not a sack. How did that, I, I, I watched that movie, but I totally remember. I remember, remember the, the third section is them meeting up. Yeah, in adult life, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. but then and how then was it's the very, very end? sort of like, Talking about what could have been, and then it cuts to like There's a, car scene a shot the... on the beach. I think is the final shot. Oh, and they're the kind film. of like hold. Are they holding hands or or some or something? I, I think it ends with them in the room, right? I, but like that's where they, as adults, yeah, like, as end, adults, and then there's another yeah. shot, and then there's one shot of either both them or just one of them just standing on the beach. Oh, it's it's a gorgeous ending. That's sort of like Moonlight's gorgeous, happy visually. but not saccharine, right? Oh, okay, there's okay. A sense of like, I like it. Things are I dig it. yeah. Um, the way we were. I don't know if you know this is one of my favorite films. I believe I mentioned. I don't know that. It, it is one of my favorite films. Oh, wow. I think it is the one of the most understatedly gay films <laughs> of all time. There's no gay romance in it at all, but um, gay men in particular just. We adore this film. It's it's a, it's a really great, and the ending is just like um, they're not going to work out. The, the relationship's not going to work out, right? All right. But the film I was going to say yes. is the original Planet of the Apes film. Okay. And really, the first three original Planet of the Apes films. I don't know if you know this. There are five. There, I know there's more yeah, than yeah. yeah. So the first the first three of them in particular all end on like really wild twists. Right. The first one is the most iconic, right? right. That's the he one rides I know. off in the That's sunset, the but so there's a surprise scene after that, and he finds right. out it was Earth all along. Right. Um, and the really great, it's not just a surprise. It's the oh my god, we really did it. We blew it up, and it's like this admission of like oh. So signing the 70s really is so terrible that we ended the planet, right? Us. We did it. We ended the planet. Um, the second one ends with um, complete nuclear devastation of the future planet. Right. And the end of the third one... I don't know. Um, the end of the third one creates a causal loop um, where uh, a child that survives the end of the third movie is what ends up causing the planet of the apes mm. uh, that, that they go to in the first movie. Right, so, right, right, right. Um, all three of those amazing endings. I have one more. I just yeah. forgot about it. My, is, my, my last ultimate one is Django Unchained. Uh, the last scene. How does that one end? The last, it's, it's Jamie Foxx setting the whole entire plantation yeah, on, fire. on fire. Yeah, yeah, that, and it's And it's Kerry Washington on a horse. So cute, so adorable. Kerry Washington, I love you. Um, sitting on her little horse, clapping as he's riding on his horse towards her, and they're going to go off into this. It's another love story. Am I a sap? I don't know. I know anyway, but the, but you, F you. Anyway, <laughs> but the point is, it's so adorable. She's sitting there, and he's blown. I mean, the whole plantation is going up in flames in the backdrop of the scene. It's just a, it's just a, it's just a blazing inferno. I kind of like thinking about the whole crazy Candyland plantation, all those people, like, dying uh, of, you know, flaming to death, I don't know, getting flayed, third-degree burns, and, <laughs> and good old Django just riding off into the sunset. All right, that's it. That's another episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Kyle, thanks Thank for coming Kyle. on. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. We enjoyed you. And as always, coming to you from Charm City, this has been Lit. Pop. Bang. <laughs>